you want to build a business model that is not dependent on third parties. You want to build squads that are not dependent on third party squads, and you want to build job functions that are not dependent on other job functions, except where absolutely necessary. That is a, a, a fractal principle that should apply at all layers of abstraction in your business. This episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by our friends at N14. We spend a lot of time talking about the importance of building out incredible teams of missionaries at your startup. And N14 are a specialist recruiting partner, finding teams of missionary engineers who are excited to work with you and your startup. At N14, they take pride in being open and transparent with candidates and with clients, and they act as an extension and representation of your brand into their network of incredible engineers. Check them out at n14.io. You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. At any given time, I'm working with a small handful of startups as a strategic advisor to help them avoid landmines and dead ends and fast forward to the best high growth answers as quickly as possible. And I'm Yaniv, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups and am now co-founder at Circular, a high growth startup. Our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley style disruption at scale. And on this episode, we're going to discuss roles and responsibilities at a startup, and in particular, how to build a high-performance team. But Chris, something I noticed when I left Google, at Google, my entire world was really software engineers, product managers, UX designers, and product marketers. And then I went out into the world, and suddenly I was confronted with this dizzying array of job titles. We had front-end engineers and back-end engineers architects and QAs and business analysts and so many different things. And I was like, what's going on here? Why is it that a company like Google that can create this enormous amount of value has this very small number of core roles and you go out into the world and there's so much specialization. What's up with that? Yeah, it's really interesting. And, uh, I, I do feel like I spend a great deal of my time with scale-ups talking about, no, no, you don't need that role. Or no, no, you, no, no. Why are you hiring that role? And what, no, why are you calling that person this thing? It doesn't make any sense. Stop that. Uh, and, and just talking about what makes up a strong product squad and the functions around a squad and uh, figuring out their roles and responsibilities. I think ultimately, Yanev, this comes from a place where A, a lot of markets outside of Silicon Valley employees tend to come from big companies where they have all of these different roles. And B, these companies tend to have weak people in the company and they're trying to compensate for that weakness by shaving off more and more parts of the job responsibility and assigning it to other people. So instead of having just a product manager, you might also have a product owner and a BA. Or instead of hiring product marketers, you'll hire and build a customer experience team. Instead of hiring great engineers who know how to build quality code, you'll hire QA and you'll hire architects and you'll hire backend and front end. And all of this stuff gets really heavy. Ultimately, it diffuses responsibility, it diffuses accountability, 
It obviously increases your headcount and your costs, but probably most importantly, it slows everything down because you have this massive communication overhead between all of these people who have all of these very thinly sliced roles and they just spend lots and lots of time building consensus with each other. I think you've taken the least charitable interpretation, which is this happens because the people in existence at the company are not strong enough. And so you, you're compensating for that. And I think that's certainly the case sometimes, but I think it's actually more problematic than that, which is a lot of the time this happens because the people responsible for building out the team think this is how it should be. And that comes from two places. I think one is received wisdom. In general, you tend to build an organization and the image of organizations that you've worked at. And the second thing is it feels somehow more grown up to say we have specializations and everyone has their place. So the business analyst can go deep into understanding the numbers around the problem. And that's a grown up thing to do. And then we have our UX researchers and customer experience teams, and then our design teams and all of these things, it feels like you're doing things in a more grown up way. And actually this is maybe a bit of an aside as I speak, one of the pathologies of how things go wrong with startups going all the way back to our first episode about small business syndrome is that there's this sense of doing things in a more mature or more grown up way that actually ends up being quite stifling. And at the core of a startup is actually this fairly loose alliance of highly competent people trying to get things done without a lot of these tools. And when I say tools, I, I mean things like forecasts and deep analysis and so on that might characterize a traditional business. We're looking more for insights and execution. So we end up with a situation where, okay, we're trying to solve a difficult problem. Therefore we need a complex org chart. It makes sense at this sort of high level, but I think you're right, Chris, that what happens here is that you have very significant handoff costs between these different roles. And also solving these tough problems requires a holistic view of how to solve them. And so if you have a small high-performing squad of people each with a major chunk of responsibility and each with a major overlap with the others, what you end up with is this holistic view of the problem and a holistic view of the solution. Whereas when you have many specialized roles, everyone taking care of one small slice of the problem, you lack that holistic view and you also start to misalign incentives because different people, depending on their job role, have different incentives in terms of what they feel their job is and what success looks like. And classic tensions I've seen between software engineers and QA, for example, because QA are more incentivized to make sure that the site doesn't go down than that there is rapid progress on delivering customer value. And so ultimately what we actually are talking about doing is collapsing all of these specialized roles into a relatively small number of more generalist roles that are held by a smaller number of people. Let's maybe talk about what is an ideal team an ideal squad, which is really the atomic unit of a modern R&D department. And let's talk about some of the roles that get added in between the gaps that are really unnecessary. I'm going to rattle some off here, Yanev. You, you catch me if I'm missing some here. A squad is typically made up of roughly five or seven key roles. There's a product manager. They are responsible for almost the business of the squad. They're responsible for what is the problem that we're solving? What is the methodology or hypotheses that we're attempting to use to solve that problem? What are the needs or requirements of my customers and my users of the business? 
And in what order do I want to go about solving that? And how do I want to define the requirements and the thin slices of scope and the iterations that we're going to go through to solve that and handing that off to the engineering team. Very often with the product manager, you find a whole bunch of people in and around that role that are completely superfluous. So you have business analysts whose job it is ostensibly to go figure out the requirements of the customer or the business, which is ridiculous. That's the product manager's job. You have sometimes customer experience teams because somehow the product is not doing the job. So you need to add like another layer of thinking around what customers really want, which is ridiculous. The product managers should be figuring that out. You have product owners, which if you can tell me what a product owner is, I'll pay you a hundred bucks. Somehow they own the product in a way that is different than the way the product manager owns the product. And so sometimes you have both on the team and they're just tripping over each other. It's all nonsense. What you need is a great product manager. You have a product designer. Maybe, maybe you have two product designers, UX and UI. It'd be ideal if you found a really great unicorn who could do both. They're responsible for working with the product manager, with users to figure out what should this thing look like? What do the pixels look like? Uh, and what are the, the various screens and steps and flows that the user has to go through? You have a product marketer who is supposed to figure out what does the market need? What do they want? What are some of the market conditions, the standard vocabulary people are using? How might you name this thing, announce this thing, and bring a lot of that stuff into the squad and once decided, push it out of the squad into the marketing team's hands and out into the market. Ultimately you have engineering. Now here's something where there's a lot of conflation as well. Oftentimes people will hire QA and they'll hire architects and they'll hire DevOps. Your engineers should be writing great code. They should be capable and competent enough to design an architecture. And maybe they do that in consultation with each other, with the eng manager, with maybe other people who might be domain experts, but they ultimately own designing the solution for the thing that they're building. They own writing to test suites to automatically test the thing they're building as they're building it. And they own pressing all the buttons and making sure that the behavior is correct before throwing it over the fence to the rest of the squad and then ultimately the rest of the company to double check and to validate. And so they should be producing high quality stuff. The moment you add a QA engineer in there, the engineers start throwing shit over the fence to QA and then QA has to find all the bugs and they throw it over the fence back to engineering and engineering fixes the bugs and they throw it back over the, it just becomes a game of table tennis. You have an engineering manager, of course, their job is to primarily manage the engineers and to make sure that their needs are met, that there's a balance between product and engineering, that their careers are looked after, that they have a sounding board. I mean, maybe one or two of the engineers in there are anointed tech leads if they're particular specialists at certain kinds of technology. And then you might have a data scientist, which is someone who can help the whole team dig into the trends and analysis, disambiguate seasonal noise and find the signal and tell the team how well their product is doing or not doing and develop hypotheses about where the bottlenecks are and what's going on. Now, there is sometimes an additional role or two where your company has a particular kind of flavor to it. So at Uber, we thought of ourselves as a tech company married to an ops company. And so in the team, in most of the teams, we had what we called prod ops, product ops. They were the bridge between the product team and the product manager and the ops team. So they would bring learnings in from the ops team and, and help inform the product. And then once the product was built, 
they would bring the, the operating changes that were implied or created by the product change, and they would go back into the ops team and educate the ops team about how that worked. That was unique to Uber because of its product and ops hybrid methodology. That's it. That's your squad. You don't need those BAs, those customer experience people, those product owners, those QAs, those architects, those, all these people that you just throw at the problem and ultimately create this communication overhead. I very much agree with what you say. Now, there are a few things here, right? There are those three very core roles that we talk about, the product manager, the product designer, and the engineering team. And as you said, Chris, I think you can divide up the responsibilities between product manager, that's owning the problem space. Product designer is in a sense, owning the solution space. And then the engineering team is responsible for executing on that, turning that vision into a reality in software. But there's something even more important to understand here, because even when you have this sort of structure, you can still end up falling into the same sort of trap that you can with a much more specialized team, which is, you call it throwing things over the wall, right? This sort of handoff problem, sometimes also called waterfall design, right? Where if you view each of these responsibilities as stages where one person is in charge and does their thing and then passes it on to the next person, you get massive inefficiencies. So if the product manager figures out what the problem and approaches, tells the designer designs a solution, they give that to the engineers, break that down into a bunch of tickets and code it up, you're going to have a really bad time. The importance of the squad, and ultimately I think more than some of the issues, Chris, around the need to specialize or not, is the fact that you're actually jointly responsible for success. I nearly think of these roles as having, I call it like a clear center but fuzzy boundaries. So each of these roles has their thing that they're most responsible for. But the way you really succeed is by having a shared responsibility right through to delivery of value. So that means that we have something that's much more iterative and much less linear than you might imagine, where engineers need to be really deeply involved, for example, in the design of the solution, because they understand a whole lot of things about the infrastructure constraints what the software is capable of, what it's not capable of, and so on, that is really critical to coming up with the most cost-effective solution. Similarly, we must have designers involved with the product ideation stage because they have a set of skills around understanding customers and how they interact with software that is really important for the product manager. And the product manager's understanding of the customer needs to be infused throughout the entire team. Sometimes this group of three roles is called the triad or the stool, as in the three legs of the stool. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode. I like to call this grouping in the squad the Hydra because it has many heads, but one heart. And the important thing here is you succeed together or you fail together. And the more specialization you have, the more handoffs, the more fragmentation of context, the less feasible it is to actually have this shared ownership of outcomes. So I would even go so far to say as if you could have 15 different specialized roles of, you know, business analysts and customer success folks and data engineers and data architects and so on, and all have genuine shared context and genuine shared responsibility for outcomes, that would be fine. But the communication overhead is so enormous that you need to keep it to a smaller group as possible. And in a sense, you're nearly making that trade-off where you say, we want to have fewer people across more things so that you can actually succeed at having this single identity and this single measure of success for the squad. 
the other thing you get when you have too many people is just simply the human nature where people are like, well, I'm waiting for that guy and it's not my fault. So as a leader, a CEO, a founder, a head of whatever, you're looking at the group going, what is going on here? Uh, who is responsible for this failure? Why are things not working? And of course, part of it is that you've got too many darn people in the group and the, the communication overhead is too high. But it's also part of it is that no one's being held accountable. No one owns the their space. They're part of the problem fully. And the product manager can lean on the BA who didn't get the requirements right. And the BA can say the customer experience team was going to own that. And we didn't run the squad properly because the product owner was supposed to run that sprint. And engineering is going to say QA didn't catch that. Give me a break. You need to take responsibility. That requires people taking uh, responsibility for that full stack. It really generates all of these inefficiencies. And I think many people who come from traditional big companies would be surprised at how simple a, a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook are designed and how these roles are really quite effective at producing massive value and scaling really well, because you can take that pattern that I rattled off and that we've talked about in another episode and just replicate it and just stamp it out more and more to thinner and thinner slices of your product. You might start the team off dealing with the customer side of the product versus the supplier side or vendor side. And then as the customer side gets more complicated, you might break the team into multiple squads and there, there might be squads responsible for discovery and search and squads responsible for the details page and squads responsible for communication, the communication and messaging part of the product. And then you can break it down even further and you can have squads responsible for just search, just discovery, just parts of the details page, just part of the communication problem. And so you can start to break it into smaller, discrete parts, but it's the same atomic unit, which is that Hydra you talk about, Yanev, and the immediate team around them, uh, and then just organized into groups. And so it's a very scalable, effective model it reduces communication overhead and it allows people to take ownership, take responsibility and deliver great results. Now, all of this presupposes that the people you have in this squad, that they're all really good at their job. What I find is that when they're not good at their job, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, that's when you start to see an acceleration of this more and more hiring, more and more roles. And instead, there are other behaviors that can be undertaken to optimize the org and deliver high performance outcomes from your team. So let's start to touch on some of those uh, a little bit. The first thing I'll say is if your team is underperforming, that's your fault. We talked about this in the last episode as well. You've either hired the wrong people, provided the wrong context, or failed to create the right processes, the right cultural values, and ultimately failed to take the right actions in order to build a great high-performing team. So the question is, how can you take responsibility and improve the outcomes? The first thing to do is define what great looks like. And when I say what great looks like, and specifically what great product looks like, what great behaviors for each role looks like, what great interactions between roles look like, what great attitudes and perspectives in this company at this time looks like. And most particularly, the one that's top of mind for me right now is what being a great product manager or eng manager or designer looks like at your company. So designing almost the performance review rubric, here's what meets expectations looks like. Here's what exceeds expectations looks like. Here's what below expectations looks like. 
not only so that you can performance review your team, but so that you can hire and level new people against that rubric. And you can help set expectations with people to understand what their job actually comprises of. So once you've defined what great looks like, you need to hire great people. So you need to have a great hiring and recruiting process, a great vetting process. And we have a whole episode about how to hire well. You need to incentivize the right outcomes. We talked a little bit in previous episodes, and maybe we should have a whole episode about this, about OKRs and about planning and about making sure that your OKRs, which by the way, stand for objective key results. These are the things that you use to measure your team's success by. Make sure that they're very outcome focused. Instead of it being about refactoring some code, it's about shipping some code by a certain date or better onboarding X number of users by a certain date or improving a conversion rate from X to Y by a certain date. Those are the best kind of OKRs where it's very much about impact metrics. And so make sure you're incentivizing the right things. The next thing you should think about doing is investing in an intense professional development for your team to increase the quality of the team you have. That might look like presentations from industry experts, lunch and learns from other team members to cross-pollinate best practices, hiring coaches and mentors and experts, providing training courses and, and certifications that your team can go on, celebrating wins and celebrating high performers. Whatever it takes to intensely increase the performance of your existing team. And then the, the last two I'll talk about is demanding more from the team. You know, when you tolerate mediocrity, you will just get more of it. And actually high performers do not want to be around mediocre performers. And so you should demand a high degree of quality from your team. And the final one, of course, is failing all of those things. Having provided that great context, hiring what you think of as great people, providing the right kinds of OKRs and planning cycles and investing in professional development and demanding more from your team, were your team to fail still after that, it's about firing those low performers, firing them and showing the rest of the team that actually performance matters and that their job is on the line and that low performers are being held accountable which will increase the morale of your high performers and will light a fire under your, let's call them your middle tier performers. I just want to take a step back because I think folks listening to this might still be thinking to themselves, the history of human progress is one of increasing specialization from our initial hunter-gatherer roots to greater and greater levels of specialization. And now I'm listening to this bloody podcast that's telling me no, you're specializing too much. You shouldn't be specializing if you want to build this incredibly sophisticated software business. Why is that? I do think we need to give this a little bit more airtime to understand what trade-offs are implicitly being made here and why it's important. When we're talking about specializing of these roles, you can say we've got a front-end engineer and a back-end engineer, and those are different functions and architecture is different from coding and, and so on. And there is a real truth to that. You can become really deeply specialized in something and you'll know more about it. But what we are saying here effectively is that in the context of building a tech company, it's the wrong trade-off to make. 
perhaps if you're doing academic research, then becoming incredibly deep on something is important. But when you're coming into a tech startup, it actually represents a misunderstanding of what a job is. And I, I've seen this a lot with engineers because again, at Google, most engineers job title is software engineer. And then you go out into the world and you've got front-end engineers, back-end engineers, iOS engineers, platform engineers, DevOps engineers, and, and all of this stuff. And it applies to these other professions as well. The fundamental skills that we're talking about in a startup are about understanding problems and then solving them in a scalable way. Even when you're talking about building technology, the most important thing is to have a good enough understanding of the problem. And then things like the different programming languages that you use, the different parts of the software stack are simply components in that solution. So we're optimizing for people who have the relatively broad set of skills that they can bring to bear on having this holistic view of a problem over people who are entirely specialized. Now, it's often spoken of what's called a, a T-shaped skill distribution, which is where you might have one area of great specialization that can be valuable, but you also prioritize having a relatively large degree of breadth. So maybe you have spent 10 years learning everything there is to know about JavaScript. That's great, but it doesn't mean that you can't operate on backend software and write code in Java or C plus because you've got those fundamental software development skills that you can apply across the board. So we are making a trade-off here. And similarly, one of the objections I got uh, from QA people when I joined a company that had a QA department is software engineers are not as good at testing code as we are. Now that may be true, but it's the wrong trade-off to make to say, we're going to have highly specialized testers. And that means our developers aren't going to have to care about it because again, that takes away that holistic view. So back to this concept of specialization, Chris, I think you captured it really well perhaps implicitly, as you grow your company, you do specialize increasingly, but instead of specializing within specific roles, what we're doing is we're taking entire squads of people and we're specializing the part of the business or the part of the product that they are working on. So you still have a generalist product manager and a generalist engineering manager, but whereas in day one of the product, they are responsible for the entire product. By the time you've got hundreds or thousands of people on the team, you might be responsible for a part of the checkout flow. The problem's still just as big, but instead of breaking things up in a sense, vertically, you're breaking them out horizontally and saying, okay, we still have a generalist product manager, but now they are tasked with knowing everything about customer checkout experience and how to optimize that. That's how you achieve that level of specialization as you grow your company. It might be worth switching to this topic next, which is how do you organize these squads so that they are high performance between each other? Because this whole episode, we've been talking about how to have a high-performance squad and to avoid hiring dead weight into the squad. But the other mistake I often see that undermines a high-performing company is that these squads are arranged poorly. So you'll have people who are responsible for, it, it kind of maps to back-end, front-end, where you'll have people responsible for building functionality, but not exposing that functionality to the outside world. That's a mistake as well. It does make sense to have what we used to call it Uber platform teams, where you're building things for internal customers. They might be solving fundamental primitives like data persistence or payment gateways or message queues or something. These are very kind of fundamental things that the whole business needs, the whole R&D team needs. And that's okay, where your customer is an internal user. But 
Above that layer, you want to be careful about squads that are responsible for things that don't see the light of day. The clearest example I have where I see this the most often is in developer platforms where there's a squad building kind of capabilities, the logic that makes the machine do something and a different squad that are building the API endpoints, basically the user interface for developers. And they're two different teams. And you'll see this in, in consumer apps as well, where they're building kind of capabilities. And then there's a different team that's building, I don't know, the mobile app or something that's really broken. Just like you want people within the squad to have full stack ownership of a problem. You know, engineering is responsible for QA and architecture as well as writing the code. A product manager is responsible for gathering requirements as well as setting priorities. You also want a squad to be responsible for the full stack delivery of value to market. So they should build the logic underneath. They should, in some cases, build some of the underlying plumbing or infrastructure if the, the platform teams haven't done that. And they should build the user experience and the whole thing should be built by that squad. And the reason for that is the same as the reason why you hire full stack individuals in a squad. You want to reduce the communication overhead between squads, just like you want to re reduce it between people. You want these people to have full accountability and responsibility for delivering value all the way to the edge. And you want to minimize these cross dependencies that drive communication overheads and slowdowns and a diffusion of accountability and responsibility. So full stack development of products between squads, as much as there is full stack ownership of delivery of problem solving between people within squads, it's a really important principle. And I would say it's actually fractal. <laughs> In the last episode, Yanev, you said you want to minimize any circumstance where third parties outside of your company can get in the way of delivering value. So you want to build a business model that is not dependent on third parties. You want to build squads that are not dependent on third party squads, and you want to build job functions that are not dependent on other job functions, except where absolutely necessary. That is a, a, a fractal principle that should apply at all layers of abstraction in your business. 100% agree. And it's funny, but those are very much the principles for designing software as well. And I haven't actually, I think in this podcast, plugged my other bit of content creation, which is my newsletter, which is called People Engineering. It's called that really because a lot of my work in building organizations at larger companies, such as scale-ups, I feel I've learned so much from good software engineering principles to creating organizations of people, systems of people, which is ultimately what your organization is as it grows, which is why I call the newsletter People Engineering, because I feel like it's very much about thinking about how do you make sure that each person has maximum independence or autonomy or context from the others. And that means that you minimize dependencies and you maximize encapsulation and all these principles that are very well known in software engineering, but ultimately you're dealing with systems of different interaction components. In the case of an organization, each component is a person, which is a remarkable, unique, complex component. And that makes the engineering exercise of building an organization even more fascinating. But ultimately, many of these same principles apply. And so again, you want to group up responsibilities into an individual such that they're able to act with all the context that they need and with as few dependencies on others as possible. I love it. I really like that we landed here because it is a recurring theme or principle across startups in general. 
I think that's why Yanev, you and I, and the the entire Silicon Valley mindset is very allergic to partnership-based go-to-market strategies. It's allergic to poorly designed squad structures that are dependent on each other. It's allergic to over-engineering or overthinking the functions and interrelationships between those things. It's what I referred to in one of the previous episodes as full stack disruption. You want full stack disruption up and down the stack and across the stack at every layer of abstraction across your business. It is the most powerful, ambitious, and aggressive way to operate. It, it's really about pulling out all the stops, empowering people and your business to move as quickly as possible. And, and it is a form of disruption, disrupting the status quo to not allow anything or anyone to get in your way and taking full responsibility and accountability for your outcomes. It's a very powerful mindset. It's one that I do not see as common or pervasive outside of Silicon Valley. And I think it is one of the secret sources that we've shared here today. I'm always a little bit excited when we're able to crack the code on one of these fundamental principles and, and share it with our audience. And to go to my recent theme here, in software engineering, that's called loose coupling, right? You wanted to talk about components being built that are loosely coupled, and that means that they don't need to know much about the other components in the system. They don't need to change when those other components change. So they're able to be self-contained and do their own thing. That's exactly what you're saying, Chris. Partnerships and having large enterprise customers and strategic investors we were talking about in the last episode. And so many of these things are forms of effectively what you would call tight coupling. You're no longer able to do things without depending on coordination with others. And that really slows you down and makes it difficult to be disruptive, right? Because rather than being this kind of free radical moving through a system and disrupting it, you are effectively crystallizing yourself into being part of the existing system and the existing structure. And, and how on earth are you going to disrupt something when you're a part of it? So this is, again, like you said, Chris, I think we've reached a kind of a ground truth here that really animates the things that happen when you're building a disruptive startup. So yeah, really love all of our listeners to take that one away with them. Very cool. Very cool. So thanks for joining us on today's episode. Yanev, how can people connect with you and potentially work with you directly? You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Y Bernstein. I'm also quite active on LinkedIn. And as mentioned for the first time, I think I've got a newsletter called People Engineering. You can find that at newsletter.peopleeng.com. In terms of working with me directly, I am full-time on my startup circular, which means unfortunately I'm not available for long-form engagements. But if you have something that's short and sweet where you think I could add a lot of value, I'd certainly be happy to talk about that. How about you, Chris? I'm on Twitter and all the socials at Chris Saad. I also have a newsletter, which you can find at chrissaad.com, but that one's more focused on product management and product strategy. And I do work with a small handful of startups at any given time. If you want to learn more about the kind of advisory work that I do, visit chrissaad.com slash advisory, and you can contact me there. Don't forget to also send us a tweet about the show, what you'd like to hear next, any questions that you might want us to answer in our next Q&A episode, and follow us on your favorite podcast app, also, please don't forget to share the Startup Podcast with your networks, Facebook groups, LinkedIn groups, Reddit, and what have you. It really means a lot to us. We've seen some of our listeners do that recently, and it's really meant the world to us. So thank you so much. And we'll catch you in the next one. Thanks a lot, Chris. That was fun. Today's episode was brought to you by N14. We love N14 because they put your priorities as a startup first. For example, most agency recruiters charge a percentage of the candidate's salary, but that means that if you need to offer a little bit more to close the deal, 
you end up paying more. How does that make sense? So instead, N14 charges you a flat rate no matter what the salary is. Even better, they offer an installment plan so that your precious cash flow is impacted as little as possible. Check them out at n14.io.